0: An integral part of worship is subjecting ourselves, submitting ourselves under the authority of the inspired, infallible, inerrant, authoritative Word of God, as delivered to us in the Bible in its entirety from Genesis to Revelation, the Old Testament, every bit as relevant as the New Testament. Not just the red letters of Jesus are inspired, but in fact, the whole Bible, as the Bible tells us. All Scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And so we have been, you have been accustomed, those who have been around long enough, to a 28-year history of taking a book of the Bible and going through it beginning to end. Pretty much switching Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament. Um, Of course, that's going to run out because there's many more Old Testament uh, books than there are New Testament books, Uh, but we'll deal with that when we get to it. We are in 1 Samuel chapter 18. We are picking up from where we left off three Sundays ago, because I was gone for the last two Sundays, and so I am back again. Um, 1 Samuel chapter 18, beginning in verse 1 through 5. It came about when David had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. And so David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered. Going back three Sundays and the Sunday before that, meaning the last two messages that I delivered before I took a break for a couple of weeks, were an in-depth, pretty rigorous study of the relationship between David and Jonathan because of the unfortunate, the ungodly, perverse ideas that have proliferated out there amongst so-called Christians and Christian churches, that there was something obviously suspect in the relationship of David and Jonathan. I entirely uh, debunked that not by putting my ideas or thoughts into the scriptures, but allowing the scriptures to interpret the scriptures, which is the only way that the Bible can be properly understood. Otherwise, it is true, you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say, as evidenced by some of the snippets that I read to you during that series from so-called Christian websites telling us how David and Jonathan were actually homosexuals. So I say that to say that, that that is what has preceded today's message, and you really do need to uh, get that for the sake of you, for the sake of our culture today, uh, because as I found out as recently as right after the first service from a dear woman who is visiting from Charlotte, North Carolina, who uh, comes every summer, telling me about the onslaught that's going on in her church right now concerning that very idea of uh, what we were talking about last week. So uh, you cannot get away from the fact that God's Word is His Word. It is inspired every bit of it, and it is authoritative. Old Testament, every bit as much as the New Testament. Things Jesus said, things the prophets said, all Scripture was inspired by God. A good measure of spiritual maturity, not the measure, but a good measure of it, and a good measure of... I think the personal, true greatness of anyone is often revealed by their ability to put others before themselves. I mean, putting others first. And I shouldn't have to say this, but I've been around the block too many times not to. Husbands and wives, that also pertains to your relationship with each other. This is my winsome face.
1: See?
0: I know. Some you just sometimes you just want to go up there and punch it. I understand. I feel that same way about myself at times. So I feel your pain. The idea of putting somebody else before you just goes against the very grain of who we are. At least after the fall which was very quick, as we know, if we know our scriptures. It goes against that sin nature. And so just by way of illustration of this idea of such a great measure of greatness, and you'll see why we're, we're going off track, but not really, because again, scripture interprets scripture, so I'm going to jump to the New Testament and mention that when John the Baptist was on the scene, and he was at the very apex if you will, of his popularity, he was out there and he was doing the baptisms, and the people were flocking to John, coming to him for baptism. And man, oh man, wasn't he riding just the, uh, the the height of the zeal of his followers and all? Suddenly, his followers start having a little heartburn because at the same time there was this newcomer on the scene, and people were starting to shift from John the Baptist into this newcomer on the scene. And the evident tone that the crowds express is that they are both perplexed, to be sure, but even more than that, they were just flat put out that this newcomer would dare to somehow lessen the greatness of their own prophet, John. And given what I said about our sin nature, this is the perfect opportunity for John's flesh again to get on that surfboard and ride the crest of that wave of his popularity and zeal of his followers john this guy's upstaging you now you're saying yeah but it was it was john i mean man it was john okay meaning yeah but it was john he's in the bible like paul I and mean, those guys weren't real real i mean they you know they were just so holy and everything else no john as a child of adam has an ego, and he has a sin nature, and he has jealousies, and he has weaknesses of character, and all the rest that comes with being human. So how does John respond in this moment of, hmm, you know they are right, I am pretty cool? In John chapter 3, verse 27, John answers and says, a man can receive nothing unless it's been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said I am not the Christ. But I've been sent ahead of him. He who is the bride is the bridegroom. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. And let's not think for a minute that because John's competition in focus here, I'm talking about Jesus, just because John's competition happens to be the creator, the co-creator, if you will, of the universe, that John would just automatically be inclined to responding in humility. Oh, thank you, thank you. No, no, no. Oh, but No, no, no. Well, if you think I'm making too much of this, let's again go back to another book of the New Testament to see another situation where the flesh being given opportunity in the presence of the co-creator of the universe weren't too intimidated by that. You remember that Jesus now is is at a, a place where his ministry is really kind of crescendoing and he's been with the disciples day and night, literally living with them for about three years And things have really escalated in that timeline and and all that's going to take place concerning the cross and everything. And Jesus is there with his disciples at a very vulnerable moment. And he is going to bear his soul to them now. And he tells them that very soon, I'm going to be given over to man to be executed. And as they were on this way to this break and taking, apparently the disciples kind of oblivious to the state of mind of Jesus and all that they're Jesus hears them just kind of quibbling amongst themselves and so right at this juncture Jesus says so what were you guys talking about just a while ago and they clam right up oh uh <clears throat> nothing <clears throat> fiddle dee And you say, "No, really, what were you guys talking about? And it turns out that they were arguing about which one of them is the greatest. They are in the presence of God, Emmanuel, God with us, and they're arguing about which one's the greatest. So you see, it doesn't matter who we are, where our level is, whether we're biblical or not, It's we have the sin nature and given the opportunity, the flesh will often run with it. The sin nature knows no bounds, not even in the very presence of God. Sports fans, let that sink in for a moment in your personal lives. We live in a day because of technology of supreme privacy. And all that that means on the bad side of evil and wickedness We can do things, we can go places, we can see things, we can listen to the things that before, boy, we had to be really crafty about how we do it and how we conceal our tracks and cover all that. Now, you can do anything, go anywhere, do anything, talk to anybody, say whatever because of that privacy. But I tell you that God knows we're never hiding anything from him. Well, as it turns out, John's reply to his fan club is extraordinary. Because you see, he doesn't merely proclaim what we would expect, the theological necessity. And I'm referring to when John says to them, look, referring to Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. Because then John soars levels higher, revealing his selfless heart, revealing his spiritual maturity and his faith and love for the Messiah, adding, I am but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears the bridegroom's voice rejoicing greatly. So this joy of mine has been made full. I am just so blessed to be in the presence of this man and to hear his voice. My joy is beyond description. Well, John's fans, you know, they're not as easily swayed. They don't have John's heart. And there they are with their We Heart John t-shirts and their WWJJ, WWJD wristbands on. What would John do? And John says, thanks, guys. I appreciate the support. I appreciate your allegiance. But now it all needs to transfer to him. From the past many weeks. Despite this little excursion into the New Testament, yes we are, as I said, in 1 Samuel. The Spirit of God that was on Saul has been removed from the wayward king and it's been transferred to the divinely appointed king, David. And back in chapter 15, God's mouthpiece, as I'll call him, that is the prophet Samuel, who was also the high priest, is breaking the bad news of all of this to Saul. And Samuel turns to leave, having rejected Saul's pleas to him about, look, okay, yeah, I know I've screwed up, I've messed up, I'm in deep doo-doo, but at least go with me back when we go back to the crowds and to the people in the kingdom and everything, so they at least know that I'm, I'm still, I'm still, you're still with me, man, you still got my back. And Samuel says... Pfft. And he goes to walk away, and Saul grabs his robe, and Samuel keeps walking away, rejecting him, and the robe tears in Saul's hand. It is more than just an accident of wardrobe malfunction. As a living pictorial... Samuel announces that the kingdom, which again was formerly Saul's, has been torn away from him like Samuel's robe was just torn by Saul and it's given to another. And I am not pulling this out of the air, as you will see, but the robe here is rightly and and elsewhere in the Old Testament in various places is the symbol at times. More than just a garment, it 's the symbol of one's authority, of one's status, of one's stature, of one's position, and in this case, of the kingdom of God itself. So we go back to chapter 18, where it opens up with Jonathan, who again is King Saul's son, and consequently, because of that, Jonathan is the heir apparent to the throne. Dramatic pause. Let that sink in. And as we'll see, his father's incessant foolishness dramatically impacts the life and the future of his son Jonathan, who had nothing to do with his father's sin. And that is yet just another hideous aspect of the nature of sin. Rarely does it ever only affect the one doing the sinning. There's all the collateral damage of the innocent bystanders. In chapter 16, David was anointed king by Samuel on the orders of God himself, leaving Jonathan, Saul's son, a legacy now of what? Of the throne? No! A legacy of nothing instead of the keys to the kingdom. And so here again, not unlike John the Baptist, we have the perfect setup here for the flesh to kick in. We have the perfect setup for intrigue and murder. Saul, the corrupt father king. Jonathan, the jealous son prince, rightful heir to the throne. And then David, David, a shepherd boy, a no-account commoner, Now the next in line. Jonathan should be seething. But Jonathan, like John the Baptist, is an astounding individual with a deep trust and love for the Lord God, believing that he truly does know what he is about. Well, how does Jonathan react now to the news of the no-account shepherd boy being established on what should have been his throne? We read it in verses 3 and 4 of 1 Samuel 18. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe or the tunic or garment that was on him, and he gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. Now, Back in chapter 17, as David steps forward to take on Goliath, we read that Saul, before he went out to battle Goliath, clothed David with his own robe, with his tunic, with his garments, and he put on him his own bronze helmet, and he clothed him with his own armor. David girded his sword, we read in 1 Samuel 17.38. He girded Saul's sword over his armor, and he tried to walk, for he had not tested them, that he had not tried them out. And David immediately takes them off. Why? Well, because they were too cumbersome. They were too big. Well, yeah, but the corrupt king's robe and armor and sword didn't fit The man David, and I don't mean David was a small and Saul was an extra large. I don't mean they didn't fit. Merely physically they didn't fit. Sit well. Because God is sending us more information about David and about Saul and the difference between the two. The Lord wanted David to have nothing to do with Saul's kingdom. He wanted David to have nothing, not even to be identified with Saul's ways. But the pure heart of Jonathan reveals his love and his confidence and his trust in Jehovah by handing David his own keys, what were rightly his, the keys to the kingdom. And so the Lord forges a very special relationship with Again, I will state not a hint, not a shred or particle of the wretched taint or perversion or corruption that the wayward posers of the faith today who wear the name of Jesus would have us believe. Verse five. So David went out wherever Saul sent him, and he prospered. And Saul sent him over to the men of war. And it was pleasing in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now, Understanding, believe me, I understand the confusion that that, that has taken place already between chapters 15 and 18, especially in 17 and 18, and so what I'm going to try and do is to lessen some of the confusion there because of the confusing aspect of the chronology of the historical narrative in front of us. So let me remind us yet again, Saul was king. He has been dethroned, not by a coup, but by divine decree. And David is actually the king, but he's not yet functioning as king. Because in the wisdom of God... There is a transitional period of weaning the kingdom away from Saul and giving it increasingly under the authority of David. Part and parcel of that wisdom of God is to give David success after success such that the loyalty of the people is very naturally being transferred over from Saul unto David. As we continue down this particular timeline of historical narrative, the relationship between Saul and David is also peculiar. At times, Saul is David's biggest fan. And at other times, Saul will be seeking David's life. And let us remember, too, that when the Spirit of God was removed from Saul past material, the Lord also assigned an evil spirit to afflict Saul. Needless to say, we can expect some bizarre behavior from the man. And so I want to underscore again what I just alluded to about what I'll call blips in the chronology of the way the story has been unfolding in chapter 17 and 18, which makes the reading of the narrative confusing as well. What I mean by that is is the easiest way to understand a a situation that's occurred, and you're writing it down, right? Is to go, well, here's what happened first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh. Okay, got it. I can follow that. But what is happening, especially in chapter 17 and 18, is we go... What happened first, second, third, fourth, we're back to something that happened already, back second and third, and then we pick up with what's happening in sixth, seventh, and eighth, and then dropping back to fifth and sixth, and then nine and ten. So we're getting, we're getting this confusing kind of chronology that unfolds, and I'm telling you, the first Several times as I was reading through this to study it, to deliver this, I'm sitting there going, wait a minute, you lost me again. This already, I thought this was, and it was. So I hope I have you equally as confused as I was. And when we get done, you'll be as equally not confused as I think I am. (laughs) Well, you say, okay, why? with God. I mean, he wants us to understand his word. He's not in the business of playing games, right? Of course. You see, I suspect the reason for this appending the flow of time is to use these earlier snippets of events to punctuate, to underscore, to illustrate, and to help explain some of the strange goings-on that are going to emerge as we continue down this historical narrative. And so, by illustration, and because it's, we're in the text, we move now back in time in chapter eighteen six just a bit, chronologically. Let's look at it, 6 through 9. So it happened as they were coming when David returned from killing the Philistine. Wait, 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 what? Wait a minute. David killed the Philistine, you know, a couple chapters ago. Or actually in chapter 17 at the beginning, and it was big, long narrative. That's already happened, but all of a sudden we're back there again. I thought we were beyond that. Well, no, but now we're back there again, and if you don't catch that, wow, it's like, huh? What? I didn't get that. All right. We're back now to when David was just returning from killing Goliath. And the women came out in the cities of Israel singing, and they were dancing. They were given a great, just a big celebration to meet King Saul. And they had tambourines, and they were full of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang as they played, and they said, Saul has slain. Oh, wait, women. Saul has slain his thousands, and David has ten thousands. And hopefully, no, 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 thank you, thank you. Hopefully it didn't sound that way. I need to stick to dancing on the radio is what I need to do. Yeah. (laughs) Then Saul became very angry for this saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they have ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? Ooh, this is easy to miss. But this is profound. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? Why do I say this? Because this all occurred already in chapter 15. We're in chapter 18. Saul, as early as chapter 15, before God had dethroned Saul and turned it over to David, is saying, well, what else can he have? Now he's got the fame and the acclaim. Now what can he have beside the kingdom? Oh, funny you should say that, Saul. This is genius literature. Not the easiest, but it's genius. And Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. <laughs> this is nothing less than good old human jealousy. Verse 10. Now it came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God, now we're back up into the present time. See? But there's no warning in the text. Now it came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul, and he raved in the midst of the house while David was playing the harp with his hand as usual, but a spear was in Saul's hand. Okay, remember the way I teach God's word is supposed to help you also just pick up little tidbits here and there to know how to rightly divide the word for yourself. So here comes one of those little tidbits, an interpretational suggestion. Don't stress and strain over every little detail in a narrative. But don't be oblivious to them either. You'll see what I mean. In the passage that is still up on the wall, we're told David was playing the harp with his hand. How else would you play a harp? Did you have to tell us that, Lord? Wait, what? With his nose, I suppose he, you know? Oh, maybe he could play it by ear. Oh. <laughs> it's see, that was genius. Thank you. It was strangely, it was strangely and seemingly this Kind of, what's the worth of that extraneous detail? But, then the next phrase says, But in Saul's hand, there was a spear. Okay, David, harp. Saul, spear, Uh, kill. David, the anointed true king, is calm and he's relaxed. And what is he doing? What is? What are his hands being used for but to serve somebody else, namely Saul, the king who's on his way out? That is, in fact, why Saul brought him into the house in the first place, if you remember past weeks. And I believe that the Lord, by doing it this way, is underscoring as a repeated theme the difference overall between David, God's hand-picked king, as opposed to Saul, the people's picked king. David uses his hands in the service and consolation of Saul, where Saul uses his hands to murder the one who is, in fact, serving him. Boy, that has a familiar ring to it. Oh, maybe that's because what comes to mind is Mark 10.45. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The very ones that he came to serve would execute him. This is not coincidental. And I do not make these insipid, all too frequently made, frivolously made connections between pictures of the Old Testament with the New Testament. But then again, remember, Jesus did say himself on the road to Emmaus in Luke twenty-four twenty-seven that beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, that would include what we're reading right now, Jesus explained to the disciples the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Bottom line, David and Saul are not Two peas in a pod. They don't go together like peas and carrots, like Jenny. Yeah. So again, now remember what I said a few moments ago about Saul's robe and armor and how it didn't fit. Saul, with his hand, hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall, but David escaped from his presence twice. David is growing in popularity with the people as a mighty warrior. Saul's popularity is waning and on the way out, we have a pointed contrasting of the two key players in this particular bit of history. David the good guy, David a man of faith, and as we'll see, loyal to a fault And then you have Saul, the demon-crazed egotist, concerned for his reputation in the kingdom. Saul attempts to kill his servant David. David escapes, and Saul, the angry aggressor, and David, the loyal pacifist. Yet, strangely, we read in verse 12, now Saul was afraid of David. What? David's armed with a harp. And Saul's armed with a spear. Afraid? Well, he should be. For the Lord, we read continuing, was with David. But the Lord had departed from Saul. Life principle. David wasn't Saul's problem, was he? It wasn't David. That Saul needed to fear. But the Lord Almighty. And this is a common issue today to all of us. Not infrequently. Not all the time, but not infrequently. We have interpersonal relationship issues which are a direct result we think, of the interpersonal relationship, but it's a direct result of divine relationship issues. We can't get things right with another person because we are not right with the Lord. It's not uncommon. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, Paul tells us, referring to individuals and disputes and strifes and everything else. He says, look, it's not that person that you're really wrestling against, but what? But against principalities and powers and demonic forces of evil and wickedness. That's where the real battle lies. Sometimes, many times, the spiritual wickedness that we are ready to attribute to everybody else is really us that's got the problem because we've been out of relationship concerning this relationship. And so we are blaming them instead of, ooh, maybe I need to pull the beam out of my own eye first. But that's not how we see it. It's always they, them, and those. It's not me. So... I think Saul here has to just be thinking of so many things. He's sitting at point-blank range from David. Do you know what that means? I don't want to take it for granted. Point-blank range means, and it doesn't matter if you're talking about a spear or a pistol or a rifle or a bow and arrow or a nut, it means you are so close you cannot possibly miss the person in a vital way. You're not going to wing them. Oh, you might just nick up No, point blank means you can't miss. But Saul missed. <sighs> Saul knows that it was, in fact, this little whippersnapper, David, who took down the mightiest warrior of the Philistines, Goliath, And he did that with just a sling and a stone. He knows that it's the little pipsqueak that then led the armies of God out to rout the Philistines after they took out their warrior. And Saul, perhaps, maybe in a rational moment, has to be thinking, okay, wake up here, dude. I have no chance against this kid. Ah, ah, But Saul is demonized. And demonized people cannot think rationally. Don't, notice I didn't say do not think rationally. I said cannot think rationally. Another dramatic pause to give us a moment to take what I said and now transpose it to our current day and age and lunacy that is rampant in our nation at the lowest levels and at the highest levels and everything in between. It is not merely human. It is not only willful belligerence, but spiritual blindness. And in fact, can be demonic invasion, spiritual delusion. We are told scripturally that that's going to increase. So what do you do with a person who annoys you? Well, if you're Whitey Bulger, you whack him. You're like, Whitey who? All right, Tony Soprano. Verse 13 Saul removed David from his presence and, and promoted him. What? And appointed him as commander of a thousand. Wait, wait, what? Wait, that doesn't make sense. Well, it does make sense. Hang on. You see, if you're a king and you've already tried whacking them, point blank, I missed. You try another tactic. You make the annoying one a commander of your troops and you send him out to the front lines and you let the enemy take care of your dirty work. And this should also ring a bell if you are schooled in the Scriptures and not a good bell. Because it is a strategy that David would copy years down the timeline of history in 2 Samuel wanting to get rid of the one who was a troubling detail in David's depth of sin with Bathsheba, putting her loyal, faithful commander-husband in the front lines and having the troops withdraw, leaving him out there to be killed as he was. Saul sends David away, making him a commander of his troops, but even if his plan is successful, his problem is that pesky creator of the universe 13b and david though the text tells us went out and he came in before the people which is simply a way of saying that david man was it he was a, he was famous he was respected he was well loved and he went wherever he wanted out and came back and in and everything else and he just had the people's acclaim he was popular If God is for us, the Apostle Paul tells us, then who can be against us? David will write in a psalm later on in his life. He will write, My foes have trampled upon me all day long, for they are many who fight proudly against me. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? This I know, that God is for me. And that." is what every follower of Christ can wear for their own. David, verse 14, was prospering in all his ways for the Lord was with him. Saul's murderous mission failed. And none of this is because of David's cleverness. None of it is because David is just such a a great leader or because of his strength. But because God sovereignly chose him for the Lord's task at hand with his warts and pimples and all. And Saul was not pleased. (laughs) I guess Saul wasn't pleased. Why? Because he was demonized. Why was he demonized? Why was he demonized? Because he was chronically disobedient to the Lord's commands. Why? Why was he consistently disobedient to the Lord's commands? We're told because his heart was not completely the Lord's as we were told David's was back in chapter 15. You see, Old Testament God, New Testament God, there are not two gods. He is the same yesterday today and forever old testament the principle that we just read second chronicles 16:9 for the eyes of the lord move to and fro throughout the ends of the earth that he might strongly support those whose hearts are completely his old testament we go new testament the words of god again now in person in the flesh matthew chapter 6 verse 33 seek first your heart first. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and everything else will be taken care of. Same God. Old Testament, New Testament. Church, where is your heart today? Who has your heart? The Lord Jesus? Yes, the Lord Jesus. When it's not soccer season. Ow, ow, ow. Okay, you just stop preaching pastor and start meddling. As long as it's not fill in the blank season. As long as the weather isn't. As long as the lake isn't. As long as my boat is. As long as the, as long. And you start looking back, and I'm not talking about, okay, you know, wearing hair shirts, if you know that illusion. The ascetics used to do that. Think of how comfortable it is when you get a haircut and you get a little bit of hair. They used to wear hair shirts. Why? To torture themselves. Because they believed that torturing themselves somehow made them holier and atoned for their sins. I'm not talking about that. But when you look back Again, over the, the tone and the tenor of your, your, just your, your, your recent lifespan, even with Christ. And you see, honestly, if you're honest with yourself, the habit and the tendency is that, you know what? Jesus! You are number 19 on my list of priorities. And of where my heart's at. And please hear me. Please hear me. And I say this with all integrity before the Lord of heaven. I am not standing here going. My heart is just fully. Always Jesus is. He's number one in my life. I love him with all my heart. All my soul. All my mind. And my neighbor as myself. No. That would be a lie. But I can look back on the tenor of my life and go. Okay, you got a lot of room for improvement here, Cripe. But you're at least on the right track. And your heart is in the right place. We know that phrase. And unfortunately, the church of Jesus Christ is so, so wayward that if Jesus were 19 on their list, we'd be in much better shape than what we are as the universal church of Christ. Where's your heart today? Who has your heart? Don Cole, I'm going to ask you to come on up and close our time in prayer.
1: Good morning. It does seem like uh, what Pastor Bill's been talking about has so much to do with obedience and love. And in my mind, I've been going back to John... Uh, chapter 14, verse 21, Jesus said, and maybe I should read it to get it exactly right. Remember, Samuel got in so much trouble because he was not obedient. Jesus speaking in John 14:21, says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him. And manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Who does not, whoever does not love me does not keep my words and the word that you hear is not mine, but the father who sent me. We've been to church, and we want to take what we hear from God's Word and apply it. You know, we're not Saul fighting the Amorites, but don't you want to obey him? You know, if you love him, we know we're not there yet, okay, but we want to be going in the right direction. You know, there's a promise that said, he who began a good work in you will perform it. Bring it to completion for the day of Christ. One good way to do it is to obey one of Jesus' commands. We're coming up on baptism. When I was almost 21 years old, I had just been converted. And I didn't understand completely what baptism was, but I did understand it was one of his commands. It's just a good place to take the truth that we hear and apply it. Why be baptized? Because we want to identify with him. I heard uh, one of Billy Graham's daughters on the radio just a couple days ago talking with Carol Connolly. Do you remember the picture of those Egyptians? Egyptian Christians that were wearing little orange suits that you see prisoners wear as they were marched out onto the beach and they were beheaded. She said that one of those people was not a believer. All the rest were. And one by one they were told to curse Christ. And when they got to the last one who was not a believer... They asked him a question, and his answer was, I want to be like them. He was going to, he identified with those believers. That's what Jesus wants us to do. It may not cost us our head, but it's a kind of a public coming out and saying, I'm with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being able to be here just to... Lord, in some uh, meager way to obey you, Hebrews says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but all the more as you see the day approaching. Lord, this blessing to come in under a man that you've anointed to preach the word and to sit under the teaching of your word which has authority. I pray that you would help each one of us to make application of it, wherever that might be, so that we could say we love you and obey you. Lord, help us to that end. Make your name great among us. Uh, Dismiss us too, Lord, with your blessing. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.